Welcome to Stories Podcast. I'm here with Aliza Arjan, PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's currently a visiting affiliate with the anthropology department at the University of Texas in Austin. We are here in Vancouver at the American Anthropological Association's annual meeting, where you will be receiving the prize for best graduate student paper in the Middle East section. You also received a prize for your work last week at the Middle East Studies Association Conference in New Orleans. Congratulations. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your award-winning research. Uh, thank you very much for this kind introduction, Jihan. Um, so in its broadest sense, my research is about how time shapes urban politics in Istanbul. And I conducted archival and engaged ethnographic research in the Tarlabashi neighborhood. Um, and Tarlabashi has been undergoing urban transformation for over a decade. Uh, in my research, I trace how the delayed durations of urban transformation uh, shift power dynamics uh, in the top, let's say, between builders and politicians. Mm. And on the other hand, I look at how communities still living around urban transformation projects in Tarlabashi make use of these delays to remain in the neighborhood. So, you know, my two award-winning papers look at these different dynamics from different angles. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, very broadly, I'm interested in how um, time is in, an important uh, variable in how urban policy is shaped because usually we think about these issues through space um, but you know in many urban transformation projects in Istanbul like Fikirtepe for instance mm -hmm. we see these projects going on and on um, so I'm, I'm uh, attempting to bring that more on the forefront in our conversations about urban politics. That's really interesting. Actually, one of our first uh, status podcast interviews some years ago was Imre Azam mm. interviewing Duygu Parmakzola about oh, yeah. Fikir Tepe. So I'll definitely put a link to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think it's very important to think about delays, not just as failures of urban transformation. Right. But, you know, they're very generative, like they really generate new forms of accumulation and mm -hmm. disposition and, um, and activism. Uh, and, you know, if we only focus on space, we tend to overlook these novel forms. So that's what I'm trying to do. That's really interesting. I'm going to ask you more about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But first, for those who are not familiar, can you give us a short history of the urban transformation project in Karlabashi, which is the neighborhood in Istanbul that those of us who are from there are familiar <laughs> with, but maybe not everybody in our audience. Uh, yeah, so, you know, just to give just to give a little bit of context about Tarlabashi. Tarlabashi is very close to um, touristic and historical landmarks like Taksim Square and Istiklal Street, who, um, you know, if any of you have been to Istanbul, if any of our listeners have been to Istanbul, they've definitely heard of these places. Um, and, you know, Tarlabashi has been the site of many demographic and spatial transformations all the way since the 20th century, because it's historically been uh, a place where minorities have resided. Um, but, you know, if we focus on the most recent transformation, 
um, the one that's still in process is what the AKP, the Justice and Development Party, has termed urban transformation. Um, so they passed these special laws mm. uh, that they call urban transformation laws, um, which goes back to 2006. Um, this specific law called No Law Number 5366 uh, gave authority to municipal governments to designate certain historical areas um, as urban transformation zones, especially if they are in decay or derelict. And, you know, these definitions of decay or being derelict mm-hmm. is very much, um, you know, left open uh, to the discretion of uh, these authorities. And so based on these designations, uh, municipal governments could expropriate properties in Tarlabashi for a compensation that uh, the central government could determine. Uh, and so Tarlabashi belongs to Bayolo municipal government and the Bayolo municipality declared 278 buildings in nine blocks as urban transformation zone in 2016. Uh, this area was put to tender and GAP Construction won uh, this bidding. And it's you know important to note that GAP Construction uh, has long-term ties with Justice and Development Party. At some point, uh, Erdogan's son-in-law, Berat Albayrak, was um, the CEO of the company. Um, the current uh, the current head of the you know broader broader company that GAP Construction belongs to has a long-standing relationship with Erdogan from the National Outlook Movement, so there are all these ties there. Um, and so GAP Construction, after they won the bidding, proposed the Taksim 360 project, uh, which foresaw um, many residential luxury buildings and business complexes uh, to be erected instead of the buildings that are currently there. But it's also important to note that um, these nine blocks are just a portion of Tarlabashi and there's still uh, you know, a significant uh, number of people still living around it uh, in the buildings, which is something that um, you know, sometimes in conversations about Tarlabashi, um gets uh, sort of overlooked or something that we don't talk about. So who are the residents of Tarlabashi when these projects started and what are the implications of transformation for those mm-hmm. original residents? Um, yeah, so, you know, these residents come from very different backgrounds. Um, there are uh, Kurdish people, you know, most of whom came in the 90s after uh, the armed conflict uh, in the Kurdish areas, but not exclusively. Uh, there were uh, Roma communities. Um, and yeah, property owners are usually Roma and Kurds. Uh, but, you know, the people who weren't owning the properties, who were renting the places, were from uh, a lot of you know different backgrounds, such as West African migrants, um, you know migrants and refugees bet- uh, from different parts of the Middle East. So um, yeah, it, and as well as uh, transsexual uh, sex workers uh, who have been who have been an important constituent, uh, they all have been 
uh, sort of displaced uh, from these buildings. Uh, what the AKP government did was to offer uh, the property owners mm-hmm. uh, some uh, apartments in the mass housing project right. in Kayabashi, which is very much in the outskirts of okay. Istanbul. And that was not necessarily sustainable because many of the people work in informal economies that necessitate being in the heart of Istanbul. Right. So many of these people um, either moved to neighboring uh, areas like Kurtulosh or came back to Tarlabashi. Um, of course, again, the people who were renting have to come up with different places uh, to live in in the aftermath of that. Um, so, yeah, there's that on the one hand, but on the other hand, the people who are you know, the people who are not directly impacted and are still living there had to think about what's on the horizon. So they had to think about uh, what will happen if this project expands in the future. Uh, And part of my work looks at um, the creative strategies that people come up with to remain resilient in the future of Tarlabashi. Um, and this includes, for example, solidarity groups that I worked very closely with. Uh, these are very informal networks that hinge on people's long-standing personal relationships. Uh, for example, somebody that I worked closely with, let's call him Mahmoud. Uh, Mahmoud knew people from the Ottoman archives, for example, and these archives are not necessarily... Um, accessible to Tarlabashi residents, he went to this person he knows from the archives, got documents that said, you know, your house is of historical landmark value. Uh, And then, you know, he used that so that the project couldn't expand. And then he started doing that for other people as well. But he timed those so strategically so that it didn't look like a mass movement so that it would go undetected. Um, Or... You know, another issue is um, is maintenance or access to healthcare or other resources in the neighborhood. So historically, in Tarlabashi, these have been tied to uh, election cycles, right? right. Uh, but um, but if, especially in the aftermath of urban transformation, um, these cycles even have became have become more sporadic. Um, the government has had a more um, a more, let's say, stable opinion on not extending these to the current members, mm-hmm. thinking that they'll leave anyway. And then again, these people like Mahmoud or others uh, who know, I don't know, someone in the municipal government or some doctor or, you know, even even shopkeepers who know people working in Taksim 360 got these people to uh, to sort of perform these services for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, you know, so there are different ways in which people have been impacted. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear about the solidarity strategies people employed, including mobilizing history. Because mm-hmm. going back to the legal basis, the government itself, you said, is uh, renovating, um, leading this urban renovation mm-hmm. uh, under the guise of historic restoration, mm-hmm. right? Do you want to say a little bit more about the legal, um, the kind of contradicting um, understandings of history mm-hmm. and historic buildings and 
mm-hmm. what that means for television. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, in thinking about those, especially talking to people working in Taksim 360 have been very helpful. Um, for instance, one of my main interlocutors uh, has been involved in this renovation project for one of the subcontractor companies that Gap Construction hired. And, you know, she bluntly states that what we're doing is not renovation. It's something else, right? Mm-hmm. And again, like these these politics of renovation are very much tied to profit making. Mm-hmm. If something's not profitable, like historical renovation is not something that gap construction prioritizes. And then, you know, that really reveals how thinly disguised Uh, it is to say that historical renovation lies at the core of these laws. Um, But, oh, and uh, again, like if if keeping history is something that's important, uh, why do, you know, why do people working in archives or people working in municipalities act as gatekeepers for residents who want to prove that their buildings not yet in Taksim 360 are uh, of historical value. Why do pe- why do these people need to engage in these kinds of brokerage to prove that right. and you know keep keep their buildings? Um, so that's that's a very important dynamic to think about. Again, like at the core, we see that um, there are these relations of profit. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's also very important to see you know, how people sort of push back against it. Because in the conversations about Tarlabashi, especially in the 2000s, um, because there wasn't, you know, a quote-unquote successful uh, political mobilization that could prevent the demolitions, um, many scholars or, you know, many journalists have said that um, you know, Tar Labash has become a failure in urban resistance, right? Because these buildings were demolished and so on. Um, but, you know, I, you know, don't get me wrong, I do contend that overt political mobilization is very, very important, but there are other ways in which people can push back and right. those that can be maybe more effective uh, for the future. So, you know, again, for example, thinking about history as one such strategy can be very generative in how we understand urban politics. Speaking of the companies, you touched a little bit on mm-hmm. the relationships between the ruling party and the companies before. Would mm-hmm. you like to say a little bit more about that? Of course. Um, you know, thinking about that has been very important for me because... Um, you know, in the media or even in academia, we talk about urban transformation as if it's this big block, as if it's this big thing, but it's very important to look into its moving parts. Um, so when GAP construction wins the bidding, uh, it doesn't necessarily take on all the tasks and all the constructions within that project. Um, in the last uh, few decades in construction industry, it's kind of a uh, convention to hire subcontractor companies, uh, especially to to uh, sort of absorb costs that can come up uh, as construction goes on. So gap construction 
uh, hired many subcontractor companies. You know, even people working in subcontractor companies don't really know how many there are because they're hired on a rolling basis. For example, a company can be hired for doing excavation. If there's excess rubble, a company can be hired for that. They can be hired to do rough construction, which is just the main contours of the building, mm-hmm. or they can be hired for doing renovation in essence case um, and you know this structure also reveals uh, many interesting again relationships of profit and an interesting lens on how accumulation works as these projects are being constructed uh, for instance uh, Essin has told me that you know you can never know what comes up in renovation especially uh, you know, they sign the the subcontractors and gap construction sign these contracts that say, okay, I'll do, for example, I'll renovate um three historically important walls in this one building for X amount of money in Y amount of time. Okay, but then they go into the building, they take off drywall. And then they see that there are five historically important walls that have to be renovated, not three. And then they go back to GAP construction and say, uh, okay, you know, we said we said we were going to do it for this much cost, but I can't make profit because there's all this new stuff that came up. Uh, can we renegotiate? And then GAP construction tends to use delays as a strategic tool. Uh, to make subcontractors absorb that cost. And since GAP construction oh, okay. since GAP construction has all these political ties with the AKP, mm. it is very, very important for subcontractors to have their name on the portfolio. So just to have this sort of cachet, let's say, or just to have these um, possibilities that they foresee, um, they sometimes tend to tend to uh, do these these tasks uh, without profit. But then again, um, you know, that's also not an absolute dynamic. For instance, uh, some subcontractor companies uh, use these delays to actually cultivate relationships with AKP politicians themselves. So, you know, one of the buildings there, um, the head of the subcontractor company got to meet, you know, some higher ups in AKP and now through these connections, GAP construction got an order from the top, let's say, uh, to accelerate those buildings and not to, uh, not to extend negotiations for so long. And that's why, um, you know, it's not very accessible. But if you go into the construction site of Taksim 360, you can see blocks and blocks and blocks of rubbles, but also some buildings that, you know, seem almost complete. Well, that's really fascinating because it really gives us deep insight into how the construction industry in Istanbul, possibly in other metropolitan cities, has been uh, functioning for a while Mm -hmm. and their relationships with the uh, not just municipal um, actors but also like central government actors, which I don't know if this is something unique about Turkey, that the central government is so heavily involved in a metropolitan city, which mm-hmm. is not even the capital. It is the biggest mm-hmm. city, but it's not even the capital. Mm-hmm. No, it's by no means, it's not unique. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one one thing to consider is, 
um, sort of the accessibility of such dynamics. Mm. Because even when I was working in Tarlabashi, um, you know, all employees of Taksim 360 at that point, which was 2017-2018, were instructed to not talk to researchers. So I think, you know, in contexts like Turkey, but also beyond, when these urban transformation projects kind of become prestige projects mm-hmm. for these central governments right. it's kind of difficult to to navigate these dynamics and you know become enmeshed with them uh, but you know throughout my research i also used uh, strategies uh, akin to Tarlabashi residents right. and I met someone who knew someone who knew someone who was working in a subcontractor company and you know of course um, of course being very uh, being very cautious about not revealing her identity. Um, you know, I've gotten to talk to her and she actually uh, got to take me to the construction site so that I could observe these dynamics as mm-hmm. well. Um, so, you know, these the strategies that Tarlabashi residents employ have also been a learning experience for me to see how I can better understand how urban transformation works. Mm-hmm. I remember in this vein that you... Uh, made some comparisons to Morocco, mm-hmm. and one that I have in mind is um, Lebanon's mm-hmm. um, tra- urban transformation project in Beirut after the war. Mm-hmm. Are there any? What are the some similarities or um, differences? Yeah, it's hard to tell because you know, I at least I haven't come across. Um, a lot of literature that delves into like the day to day of 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 uh, of these people working in construction right. industries, um, but you know there's definitely been very generative work uh, in Morocco, for example, that shows that these delays are not necessarily failures, but they kind of become ways in which, for instance. Um, the Moroccan government's, you know, authoritarian stance becomes a little more loose. Mm. Um, Because, you know, in different places such as Morocco, as you mentioned, uh, sort of getting this fast finish uh, to these projects become the source of prestige, which is kind of a kind of a leverage uh, for companies. Yeah, but in Tarlabashi we see something a little different. Um, because, you know, in my article, I also do a little bit of uh, media analysis. So, um, Taksim 360 was projected to finish in, first it was announced to finish in 2013, then that was 2014. But then in the media, you see a complete disappearance of these temporal markers. Like after 2014, all the news about uh, Taksim 360 is about... Uh, potential foreign investors you know there's a uh, for example there are news about a very you know rich Chinese businesswoman who says oh I'm gonna I'm thinking about making this place into a Chinatown of Istanbul yeah or you know the the I think he's the head of the company the head of the fashion company Hermes has apparently visited the site so you know all this narrative uh, becomes shifted into that, and I think this is something novel that the AKP has done to sort of employ the media mm. 
to shift this emphasis on time as a measure of success, uh, which, yeah, which, you know, I'm sure there are examples of in the Middle East or mm-hmm. uh, broader contexts. That segues nicely into my last question for you, mm-hmm. which I'm wondering how the downturn in the economy um, has affected the construction projects, both in Tarlabashi and across mm-hmm. Turkey. We've been hearing a lot about layoffs and mm-hmm. um, maybe even further delays mm-hmm. than the... like. So, yeah, do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, actually, you know, this project, these projects go back to one economic crisis, uh, <laughs> you know, which was in 2001, which right. marked the AKP's coming to power. And then, you know, they started generating these urban projects to... Um, to sort of turn around the economic downturn back then. But, you know, in 2018, with the crisis with the U.S., uh, because of the, you know, detention and jailing of Pastor Brunson, the value of the Turkish lira against the dollar uh, dropped dramatically. And, you know, in thinking about how that impacted Taksim 360, we have to be very cognizant of how construction works, right? Like these subcontractors buy all the materials with dollars and they don't, like they buy in tons, like they buy, I don't know, maybe they were planning to buy three tons of iron, let's say. And again, this goes back to the dynamics of contracts. Let's say in 2014, subcontractor X signed a contract with GAP Construction saying they will do um, this work for a certain price point. But again, when there's this huge, um, huge change, you know, they cannot do that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they can't even break even if they do that. Right. And then, you know, that again becomes, as you said, a way of sort of an avenue to delay these things even more. And that sort of also becomes an opportunity for gap construction because, you know, had they done this, of course, they would have to deal with these costs. But now they can again make these processes linger and linger and linger. um, And subcontractors have to be sort of creative to find ways to navigate this. And, you know, in these dynamics, you know, people like Essin who are you know, on-site managers who occupy sort of in-between positions become very important um, because, you know, people like Essin are on the construction site every day. They manage the workers. They also report to their supervisors and their subcontractor companies. And they also are in uh, constant back and forth with supervisors from GAP construction. And now for their professional development as well, like the less they give to GAP construction, the better off they will be. Mm. Um, so for instance, they can resort to improvising with labor. They can resort to firing some uh, manual laborers for a while until you know they get more uh, hard cash or until they get more payment from gap construction or you know many of these companies have not only one building but several so they can move um, so they can move workers 
uh, to another task where there isn't such a conflict for a while. And then here we see, you know, new avenues of disposition coming up, right? In the backs of workers or, right. um, or you know, again, extra disposition, let's say, uh, from from the subcontractors and again like it's important to say you know i'm not necessarily occupying a position where i think you know the subcontractors are the most vulnerable in this picture um but the, again you know it's very complicated yeah. we should think um we should think in a very nuanced way uh, about who we're talking about when we say urban transformation because mm-hmm. there are all these moving parts and then it makes um, you know, usually when we're talking about urban transformation, we talk about, let's say, accumulation, accumulation by dispossession uh, on the backs of Tarlabashi residents. But again, this accumulation is um, sort of capillary in a sense and seeps right. into any part of these right. projects. It seems to be on multiple levels. Actually, it reminds me of the networks of dispossession, mm-hmm. uh, which I'll also put a link to as well, which... Mm-hmm. Kind of shows the accumulation of capital around the bigger construction companies, which have links to the media, links to um, other big players, mm-hmm. right? Sort of this mm-hmm. concentrating uh, demonstrates very well visually how mm-hmm. kind of capital and power concentrates in certain nodes, right? Yeah, definitely. And you know, actually, the networks of disposition website has been very important for me to. Um, sort of visualize who are the actors here and you know we can even make it uh, you know something more detailed than just the companies but Mm -hmm. sort of the positions within these companies um, you know maybe that's something that we can take on in the future sure you should uh, get in touch with Burak and Zaino and others (laughs) uh, yeah it's a great idea yeah (laughs) well do you want to say anything more um, I would just like to thank you, Jihan, for uh, taking the time to interview with me. Uh, and for yeah, of course, interview. of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I don't know, I guess, uh, I guess as last comments, um, you know, I really like my whole project has been at the core of my project has been sort of pushing back against these dominant narratives that Tarlabashi is done and everyone studied urban transformation mm-hmm. already and there is, you know, nothing else to do and so on, um, which is, you know, completely not true. Like, places don't die when these projects start and, uh, you know, the processes uh, in which projects um sort of unfold are very important to look at, be it construction projects or security, securitization projects or, you know, anything else. And, you know, lastly, I really want to um, encourage our listeners to look into, uh, to look into, you know, the people that actually occupy these processes mm-hmm. and, and, you know, see what kinds of agencies lie at those points. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for very much. This is Jihan Tekai. I just interviewed Alize Arjan about her fascinating, award-winning research on the urban transformation of Tarlabashi in Istanbul, Turkey.
You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com. Thank you.